Brian Friedman is going to join us a top 10 World Cup downhiller. So the athlete part was Sirius XM's Coffee House emerging singer songwriter and also founder of Soul Poles is an environmentalist, does a wide variety of different things. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Like the best part of my career, you know, realistically should have been like late 20s, early 30s as a downhiller. Like I had everything I needed to win, essentially. I had the right equipment, I was strong, I was mentally prepared, I was, I had confidence. And at that moment, it was like the ultimate, just like smackdown and like, just like that, one little mistake. And that was a hard thing to swallow. Like, I'll, I'll, so many things go through your mind. I mean, you've been through, you know, unimaginable trauma as well, right? You get it. Like it, it's. You've done it, yeah. I think the segue here is is it opened my mind to emotion and to expressing emotion, not having to be this like hard nosed downhiller. And you know, and then music came in, and there was this like ability to express feeling through song and my experiences through that that I couldn't really necessarily talk about but I could use song and, and, and music as my outlet and that was pretty I was lucky to have that I guess you know and and like you know one door opens or one door closes another opens and so suddenly you're in a different room Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Whiteout, Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human, athletes, artists, entrepreneurs. Today, we actually have a guy who covers all of those categories. Brian Friedman is going to join us a top 10 World Cup downhiller. So the athlete part was Sirius XM's Coffee House emerging singer songwriter and also founder of Soul Poles, is an environmentalist, does a wide variety of different things. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Chris, thanks for having me, man. This is awesome. This is super cool. Now, (laughs) I don't know if you noticed this, but a couple of weeks ago, I actually posted a quote that I attributed to you. You might not even remember this, but we were talking a long time ago and you said something along the lines. So you might have to, you might have to correct my quote, but you said something along the lines of, it takes a lot of work to be an overnight success. Uh, yeah. Do you remember that? Did I catch yeah, it? Did I catch the yeah. quote? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good one. Yeah. It takes, yeah. It takes like, it's something like the amount of like, decades or years to become an, an instant or overnight success, right? Like that's like, yes. it's the classic, right? Suddenly, you know, people think it's just like happens. <laughs> <laughs> what at this point for you, what would it look like if you became an overnight success? Could you even imagine that? What would it look like? I mean, how cool and surprising would that be? <laughs> Like you woke up one day and like had no, and you walked out your front door and suddenly you're like this successful person. You're like, you'd think you were a fraud, (laughs) you know? Well, you'd think you were a fraud, but, but I mean, I just introduced you. I mean, so many people would look at what you've done and gone, what do you mean? You are already an overnight success, aren't you? I mean, how does, how do you reconcile that? And what is it, how does it work with like 
where you want to go or your image of what it might be, what, what fulfillment might look like. Yeah. There's a funny, uh, a funny way to like put it actually is like, yeah, I've had successes, right? Like lucky to become a USQ team member and to have some success in the world cup. But with that success, there's always that margin that you never experienced or achieved. Right. And that's the blessing and the curse of it all. In my opinion, it's like that, that focus and effort that you put into what you want to do and become, you're never going to, no one's like, no one makes it like, like the very minuscule grain of sand, you know, human on this planet achieves everything they want to achieve and maybe even at that point like might you watch michael jordan talk about like well he should have won that game or should have won that series you know what i mean it's like there's always something more and i don't know i think the overnight success thing is interesting because yeah i've had successes but like that was almost a lifetime ago in ski racing right like that was i retired 11 years ago uh like I, i mean i wake up at night sometimes like man i really wish that i didn't have that injury maybe i could have won an olympic medal or had a won a world cup eventually like i never felt that top podium you know so it's a blessing and a curse <laughs> let's let's take a step back because you grew up as a ski racer right park city utah what did you know you wanted to be a ski racer when you were a little kid yeah so that took so i moved to utah from atlanta and georgia when i was eight and just liked to ski it was just fun and then by the when i was 12 i had won my first race started racing at 10 and then i remember this 12 years old uh willie's run at park city cool gs and i just nailed it and i was you know i was young in the field like there was plenty of older competitors and i just won the race and i was so like like whoa i was kind of surprised but full-on steep too like willie's catches your attention that's yeah i mean it wasn't the top we didn't we didn't start at the top but like still good it's a world cup hill yeah um and i won that race and it just something ignited and inside me and it was like oh i like this feeling and and (laughs) whatever that is and i think that's the thing that you feel that you know whether it's winning a race or you know jumping out of a helicopter to go heli skiing or i don't know surfing a wave writing a song it's that if you don't have that feeling internally then maybe there's no longing to ski race but that was where it started for me that 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 ignited the 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 drive i think drive this feeling of like this is cool but but it also i mean it sounds like winning was cool but it also sounded like the feeling of of doing it right you know skiing is I always say skiing is an art form in a lot of ways. It's like ballet and when you do it well, yeah, that it's just, everything comes together and it's, it's not only fast, but it's beautiful at the same time. Was it that sense of aesthetic and sort of an internal kind of aesthetic? Yeah, I think when you, when, you know, you, you hear about, that was probably my first experience with the zone as they like to call it, or when time slows down and, you're just in this state of mind and state of being and it's it's euphoric you know it feels good and in skiing because you're moving fast like sliding on you know a firm surface and like like you said dancing on the snow and trying to like make these really nice turns and um 
you know, I was 12 and like loving, I love to make turns and I was making really good turns. And I have a picture from the race too. And it's just, it just has, says it all. Like it, it just has like, this is just really, I'll have to send you, I, I forgot to send you pictures, but I'll send you some pictures of this. And okay. it just has this like, I don't know, there's a moment in time and it, it was pure joy for sure. Yeah, pure joy, pure in the moment. And, and is that when you said, okay, I want to dedicate myself to this? Like, I want to go to the Olympics or is it just, I want more? Yeah, I think it was just, I want more of that. But it was also the same run where you get to watch all your like World Cup heroes race every year because we had the World Cup in Park City. And it was a combination of having that experience of my own, but also seeing the best of the best in front of me on the same hill that I had won a race on. And that you know, it's a pretty cool thing to experience as a 12 year old. And my coach at the time, Patty Formicelli, like, I don't know if you've ever met her, but she was like the drill master. She made sure your ankles were flexed. You stood on your outside ski and like taught you how to work and get better technically. And I believed her every word. And she coached Jeremy Nobis, who was racing that world cup and was winning the run. I don't know if you remember this race. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, winning the run and everyone's going crazy. And he sticks his head through the second to last gate and crashes and like this whole ordeal. But like, I remember Patty jumping up and down on the side of the run and how excited she was for her boy that she taught, you know, back in the day. And there was something about Park City then and, and the coaching. And anyway, so it wasn't just in, internal. It was extrinsic as well, you know, like seeing, you know, um, the best of the best there and and seeing a coach who had coached the best that grew up in the same town I was growing up in. It was just kind of serendipitous, I guess. Yeah. Serendipitous. And it, it minimizes that space too, right? I mean, oftentimes it's like you're watching the best in the world on television. So this was, they were real. Yeah. Like you could actually touch them. I mean, like, like Nobis, you'd skied with Nobis, I'm sure on numerous occasions. And so it's like, well, he, he seems like a, he's great, but he also seems like a person. He seems like somebody who's real because I've seen him. And yeah, I mean, exactly right. Yeah, that's a, it's so interesting what your mind, can, how your mind can take you, put these athletes or politicians or whomever on a pedestal. But at the end of the day, they got to put their boots on and buckle them down and stand on their outside ski, just like you have to. Or they got to like, you know, eat healthy and exercise and get ready, you know, whatever it is. It's like, <laughs> it's the same where, you know, same thing. But. So how old were you when you ended up making the team, making the U.S. team? US team? Uh, I, I, this is my favorite story to tell, Chris. <laughs> I'm, this is just perfect. Uh, the U.S. ski team, I made the U.S. ski team when I was 16 years old. They sent a letter said saying congratulations for qualifying for the u.s ski team but we are not going to name you to the team that was my first experience with the u.s ski team i have that letter so what is that what does that mean or, or how did you figure out what that meant um their excuse as i recall there was four or five of us in my age group that made the team that year uh, a few other guys like Jesse Maddox. Met the criteria, right? The criteria. Met the criteria, exactly. Okay. And they were in financial dismay uh, at that point. 
I don't remember who was in charge. I think it was Paul Major was the guy in charge. And then there was just really poor management in general of what was going on. It, you know, I'm 15, whatever, 16. So like, I don't really understand that at that point. All I know is my dream was to make the team. I did what they asked to do me to do. And the first letter I see was like, congratulations. Now, you know, sorry, like we're not naming you the team. We don't have enough money. We think you're, you know, not ready, whatever, whatever it was, it was, <laughs> it was just like, huh. Um, so that was my first experience. And then they changed the whole system where it was like, oh, like guys are making criteria now. We got to change this. And, and so they changed the system and they created this development system, which they prior to, to didn't really have much of one, you know, they've been back and forth on what to do and Aldo Radimus started this development system and that's you know so i was on that in that group and then eventually i think when i was 19 no i think it was 20 maybe made the b team because they got rid of the c team suddenly there was no c team so like that's really what they did they're like oh all these people are making the c team we don't have the money let's just get rid of the c team and create a development program like it's almost like they like they made the decision because of finances not because of actual development but although to his credit built a great system. And anyway, I was a, I was a product of, of that system uh, and eventually made the B team. I think I was 20, 20 years old. And then shortly thereafter was on the A team, uh, had some success in the world cup. And uh, yeah, so that was. So you started, so, so you started at 10, you won your first race at 12. You made the ski team at 16. This is a fairly rapid progression to get to i mean a lot of people are banging their heads against the wall for a long time and you don't hear of many men who make the team at 16 there's a big difference between a 16 year old and a 20 year old yeah yeah i mean yeah for sure like it's a big difference i think the difference was though the criteria was based on your age group world rank okay. right and so like you're not competing against 20 year olds for that. You're competing against other 16 and 17 year olds or whatever the age group was. Um, and yeah, but that I'll, I'll never forget though. That was the year we had, I never raced downhill before. And Jackson hole has the classic downhill. And that was my first downhill ever. And at that race, me and a couple of the 1980s, you know, born in 1980, just for whatever reason, like, really like to go fast <laughs> and, and uh oh man i'll never forget that race like that was like you know you talk about like you know the winning your first race or whatever but then your first downhill race feeling that adrenaline going that speed catching that much air coming through the finish and just like feeling the blood coursing through your veins and that that euphoric you know aftermath is was incredible and then we got results so like we were we did like all these like young guys kind of like had good races and that's how we made the team and so from, were, you, were there other like other u.s ski team members that were in that race at jackson hole yeah there were a couple um i can't remember who i think uh there definitely were a handful and we gave them a run for their money <laughs> as like starting in the snow seed like starting you know or like starting in the weeds, like in the hundreds. Like, Triple digits on your on your bib. 
never been in a downhill before just going for it <laughs> it was super fun yeah and you it get was finished and you're like hey hey guys this seems like this is fun like yeah as you've been around for a long time like, like i i like this i like yeah, this is cool yeah so it was pretty it was a unique it was i also recall it was like negative 30 Ooh. uh that that week like they wouldn't run the lifts until it was warmer than minus 30 it was cold but it just was it was great it was it was fun yeah I'll never forget that. did you become a downhiller that day like because in a lot of ways like looking at you I, it doesn't say to me downhiller like you don't i mean you <laughs> are like stocky yeah. kind of thing yeah yeah i used to i mean i'm what 170 175 pounds maybe but back then, or when I was at my peak, I was 205 pounds. So I had a little bit more weight on me. But yeah, I think it was my first taste of adrenaline like that. And I had my brain was able to process things at high speeds. You know, not everyone has that. Like, it's a different feeling and it's a different line and tactic, right? It's it's not as technical. It's more tactical, tactical in a lot of ways. And I just liked it. And, and that... I would say that for sure was the beginning of it. Uh, but I, you know, you don't race many downhills as a kid. You're, you're, it's technical. You're racing slalom and GS, and um, and I made the team in in uh, in in tech. Like I actually made the national. Like after they got rid of the C team and it was a development, my jump from the development team to the B team was in GS and slalom, not in downhill. Okay. And shortly thereafter, you know, my first Europa Cup. You know, it was a similar experience actually to this Jackson Hole race, starting in the hundreds in Shem and Saint Moritz, like, and got like, I don't know, eleventh or something like that. In my first Europa Cup downhill, like, it was just like, whoa, cool, like I like that feeling, you know, like right on. Um, yeah. Anyway, it, downhill was always um, it seemed like I just had the ability. Uh, just more ability in downhill than say any other event. Yeah. Which is interesting. And especially in a Europa cup, I mean, may, maybe a lot of people out there don't necessarily know, but Europa cups are notoriously like difficult, nasty conditions. And especially if you're starting at the back of a pack that, you know, they've already decided the race well before you go. They're like, yeah, yeah we don't need to worry about any of these guys. Nobody's going to shovel. Nobody's going to smooth anything out, get any holes out of the way. But then you come from the back of the pack, go 11th. What's the, what's the thought process? Like you go from, from Jackson Hole, which is, which is a, a legitimate downhill, but then you go to like the Europa Cup and you, then you eventually get to some of the, the World Cups. What's it like to go through the starting gate? of a world cup down because you've you've been through the starting gates i mean you've been through the starting gates of Vangen and kitzbühel and valgardania i mean these kinds of plebeaver creek you know like what what is that like how do you marshal all your courage to say this is gonna be fun <laughs> i think when you're younger it's definitely like this is gonna be fun like you're just so stoked to be there you know, your my first year World Cup downhill must have been, I think, I guess it was Lake Louise, right. probably, which is like a pretty mellow track compared to, you know, most tracks. And then, uh, you know, you kind of have to ease your way into it because there's no like preparing for what it feels like to step into the starting gate of 
like two races in particular, Ormeo and Kispiel for me were like, you're stepping into that gate and you're like, okay, this is, this could be really good or this could go really bad. <laughs> you know, it's like that type of feeling. And I don't know, and we, we, you know, this mental trick you have to play on yourself a little bit of just overcoming the fear, focusing on the technical, tactical, um, you know, progressions that you've visualized over and over and over, like where you want to enter specific turns and direction of the off the jumps. If you can keep your mind occupied with that, then the fear kind of goes away. And um, but there's that moment of no return. You know it, dude, when you hear that beep. You're like, oh man, here we go. Hear that beep and like, like just breathe and then go and let it go and let it happen. And I, I think that's the, the the difference between like a you know the the Noram to the Europa Cup to the World Cup is just you know like exponential. Honestly, it's a whole different ball game. And yeah, it's. It takes time. Particular about Bormio and Kitzbühel. What? What? What are? What? What is that pucker factor? What? What is? What makes them different? Um, I think the well, Kitzbühel is notorious, right? It's just you, you're coming out of the starting gate. The pitch is it's so steep. Uh, you you've got basically when they you know, paraglide out of the start during the summertime. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's so steep. And you've never seen a start that steep before, like right out of the gate. Usually it's like flat. You get your stuff, you know, you get your, you know, get it together, get in your tuck, feel the edges. Here it's like, you're like, do I want to get in my tuck? Like, I probably should. Otherwise, my coaches are going to give me shit, you know, but I don't want to, <laughs> you know, so like you to kind of like reluctantly get in your tuck after the out of the start and. You know, that first 30 seconds, that top section of Kitzbühel is the most intense 30 seconds of ski racing, hands down. And then the middle section is pretty mellow and the, and the bottoms, you know, again, like ramps, the intensity ramps up exponentially. Uh, and then Bormio is different. Bormio is actually, you know, pretty flat up top, like with the exception of like with a first little turn, you catch a little air, it's steep, but it's pretty flat up top, but you are flying. And you come out of this gun barrel into like just big sweeping turns that are bumpy the whole way. And it's two minutes of of your muscles having to expand, contract, expand, contract, expand, contract, like absorb, absorb, absorb. And it's like the, the Italians are like they do just enough to get a surface ready. Right. Like the Italians are let, let's be honest, like they're not the most like hardworking culture out there. We love them, but they're going to do just enough just enough to prepare this this so they're out there with the hoses just hosing it down and like you know maybe a little bit of like no grooming it's there's no grooming involved and it's just imagine just like someone slipping a trail or boot packing a trail and kind of smoothing it out and just opening up the hose and anyway it's gnarly <laughs> the frozen footprints in the hose and i mean yeah looking at those because i mean i've never i've never done either of those and i'm fine not doing either of those but just watching them on tv and even like kitsville a couple of years ago they showed after the races they they opened the start to the general public and, and just to see people go out and they go and try to make like one turn or like try to slow down and all of a sudden they're in the net like 
150 feet away because it's that turn then it's then it's then you're in the air for what like 150 feet and then a big turn and then the air and then <laughs> yeah no it's true yeah you're you're the mousefalle that first jump is is pretty big like it the, the world drops away from you pretty quickly and you know you it's just it's interesting like even just like your vision like everything's so bumpy and rattly like you're you can't your eyes can't adjust sometimes you're like like trying to just keep a clear focus and and Bormio is a lot like that just the whole way whereas Kitzbühel is like really really radical for 30 seconds and you're like huh. but then you have to like contemplate the last 30 seconds for a minute you know you're <laughs> kind of like and crazy. your legs are getting tired while you're in your tuck as well I mean you're in your tuck which is you know most people get into their tuck for 30 seconds and their legs are burning yeah, into your talk for 30 seconds as a bit of a respite until it gets crazy again. And and some of those jumps, I mean, people don't recognize, I think that those jumps, the scariest ones for me are the ones where you're coming at it and all you see is the valley below. Like you don't you don't see snow anymore. You just see the valley. And, and there's a part of your brain that goes, am I going all the way down there? Am I landing where there's no snow down in the Brown Valley? You know? <laughs> yeah. You're choosing these like cathedral landmarks as like your directional change in the air, you know, like of like the town, you know, it's, it, it is a pretty interesting visual. It's funny. You bring that up. I hadn't thought about that in a while. It's, it's very true. Yeah. It's, you see these, like this perfect little European village below you and you're off into space. <laughs> and you've got to be okay with that. I mean, some of what you said that, that I thought was really cool is that doing your job is the thing that gets you focused and gets you out of your head. This is what I have to do. And there's almost a, there's almost a security built in doing your job. This is what I'm supposed to do. If I do my job, then everything is okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the challenge. Job. <laughs> but you had to earn your way up. I remember you and I actually trained together at one point over at Snow Basin back in 2002. This is approaching the games here in Salt Lake. So you and Darren and Fleischer were yeah. training with us one year and you were still the young guy. So Brigham and I had grown up ski racing together back in Massachusetts. I guess he's Virgil now, but he, he's still kind of bring him to me because, because that's, that's who he was back in the day. And he was still calling you puppy. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. That guy called me puppy. I, I had this <laughs> awesome nickname free dog that I had been holding on to forever. And, and he wanted to call me pup because I was the young buck and hadn't really like, you know, made my mark on the world cup. And so Brigham was the uncle Virgil. We called him Uncle Virgil, 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 whatever, you, you know, um, great coach, great guy. And, and uh, yeah, he called me pup. So like puppy, pup, whatever, you know, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> that then you started becoming free dog. I mean, this is then, then you got some, some top twenties and then in, in what, in 2003, back to back, back to back seventh places, right. In Beaver Creek and then Valgardenia which is another one. I mean, those are two legit downhills. Yeah. 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 Especially I would say, yeah, a lot of terrain, a lot of errors, you know, it's not like, you know, the flat Lake Louise or something like that. It's, it, it's like a legitimate trail, legitimate course, um, an accomplishment. I was stoked. Like that's, 
that's when the confidence started rolling. You know, once you start to like, no, like you're like, okay, like I know what it takes to be in the top 10. I can do better. I made some mistakes. How do I win? You know? And at Beaver Creek, you had the green light too, right? When you finished. I did. Yeah. I think I, I can't remember what I ran fairly early, like, like, you know, or something, I think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I was holding the green light for quite a while, actually. I, I, it was really fun to just be like in the hot seat. And then, uh, you know, eventually, you know, whatever, uh, I think it was Canals or someone came down and, and, and bumped me out. And then Bodie and Darren, I think one, two, they went one, two that day. And um, it was a pretty good day. It was a really what a good deal. Day. And then you go to Val Gardena because one of those, I mean, in some ways you can kind of say, okay, well, that was at Beaver Creek, which is, which is a really tough downhill, but it's also still in the U.S. Yeah. And the game is a little bit different when you go to Europe, just conditions are different, course, control, course maintenance. I mean, Val Gardena is in Italy as well, <laughs> as you might have mentioned. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm going to get a bunch of like hate mail from Italians. No, it's there, you know, Val Gardena was, I would say, a lot better prepared track than most. I think they did. They did a really good job there. Um, the difference with that mountain or that hill is the just the amount of terrain they have, like the Shaw's lot and the camel bumps. And that's a wild ride. Like there's just so much terrain, but you can open it up like, you, you know, you can really like let your momentum go until like that Shaw's lot. And you have to be very. Like your legs have to be like pistons to just like absorb these things. And um, yeah, it was great. Like that was a fun trail. I loved that track. I thought, you know, I was, I should have won that, that race at some point had I, maybe had I had stayed healthy or I don't know. I feel like I, that was one I was going to win, but it is what it is. <laughs> uh, so that was right before Christmas. And then you come back. And then, then you get to Chamonix, where you'd been tenth the year before, right? Yep. Yeah, that was my best result the prior year, Chamonix. That's probably like the race, like where I thought, you know, we had the Christmas break. Um, and uh, did you stay in Europe for the Christmas break, or did you come home? Yeah, stayed in Europe. Bormio was canceled. Too much snow. No, I, actually, I can't remember. I can't remember Bormio was canceled that year or not. I think so. Anyway. Um, and we had a training camp before Chamonix somewhere in Italy and we actually had a downhill trail training with Bodhi, the Italian, like some, some of the Italians, I think. And I was on fire. Seriously. It was just like Bodhi couldn't touch me like, in the, you know, in downhill training. Like I was just confident. I had good equipment. I was standing on the ski. Well, I was aerodynamic. I looking for speed in every nook and cranny I could find it. And then Chamonix. Uh, yeah. The, uh, and so what happened in Chamonix? Yeah. So I was, I was going to win. Like that's what was going to happen. Like no doubt in my mind that I'm winning this race. And, uh, so we get to Chamonix. It's like pretty warm, like change, like, like this warm weather comes in and in our first training run, you know, it's like, kind of like just hot like your boots are flexy it's hot like the snow is really kind of funky um and uh you know i go out of the gate and um kind of like get stuck in the soft stuff a little bit before this big right uh right-handed carousel turn 
and uh, just lose my ski just enough to where I was like, okay, I need to redirect here because I've lost some elevation. So I stomp on it. It it hooks up and I go off this little piece of terrain going into this 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 right hand turn and I and I just like get too much air and kind of high side a little bit right like um, and I land and like next thing I know I'm just like you know cartwheeling essentially like which is about seven miles per hour yeah 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 your 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 momentum's so fast you're just like boom but boom but boom you know cartwheeling and came to a stop and like kind of did the whole body check like like okay head's good you know and then like i'm looking down on my leg and it doesn't hurt yet but i noticed that it's just basically like dangling you know like still in the ski like still like you know boot boot and ski uh bindings are still intact and and i like gently like grab it and then the pain rushes in and i'm like oh this is bad like this is like bad, really 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 bad and i just start screaming for help and you know you know like one of those like pains was crazy like you could just like feel like like it was it was like your the brain was trying to catch up with the body it hadn't quite computed like how bad it was it didn't really know the adrenaline was pumping and eventually that went away and the pain set in and it was awful like it was yeah it was excruciating uh but you you know your body deals with it and you know you just kind of like like figure it out i guess you know you just deal with it well yeah i mean they ski you down what did you end up breaking uh it was it was a tib fib uh is tib fib which is you know like that happens but the problem was it probably broke early in the crash and because the ski didn't come off that there was a lot of you know the the, the leg had no integrity at that point and a hundred and or sorry a 200 and 15 centimeter ski attached to a binding that was set to like 21. Yeah. Like it was twisting every which way the bone was broken, the tissue, the soft tissue was getting like beat up the compartment. I ended up getting compartment syndrome. So like, by the time I got to the hospital, my leg, my lower leg was bigger than my thigh. Yeah. I'll send you a picture of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can check that out. <laughs> See that one. And, uh, that's, a, that's not good. Uh, and yeah, I was in surgery um, within a couple hours of the crash. They saved my leg. And that was, was a worry, right? That, that you might lose your leg? I mean, I wasn't aware of it. I don't know. Like, but yes, it was a worry. It, it definitely, um, it could have gone the other way. Because we had that Austrian guy who had that happen a couple of years ago, right? Who ended up skiing in the Paralympics, actually. It was Lonsinger, Stefan Lonsinger. Yeah, he did. He hasn't. Uh, he did in. I feel like in Pyeongchang he was there. Might have been Sochi. Uh, so it's only. I think it was only like a couple of years that he was there. But but yeah, he same thing. Crashed in the Super G. Ended yeah. up. It was that bad a crash that he lost his leg and and came back and skied in the Paralympics. Yeah, man. He we we were the same age. We raced a lot together, like through the World Juniors and stuff like that. He's a good guy, and and I remember that crash. And you know, he was unconscious when he crashed. So he couldn't protect himself from the yeah. subsequent like fall, you know, I, who knows? You just never know. Like, like maybe I could have lost mine, maybe not, but man, like to think, you know, either way, like it, it was traumatic <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah, that was a dark time for me. That was tough.
Yeah, what do you what do you do from there? Because in some ways, from 10 years old, it's been building to this moment. And you said in the start, I'm ready to win. Like I'm I'm going to win. And you know, this is this is in some ways, this is like the overnight success too, right? Like this is it. I'm going to win. I'm going to be an overnight success. I'm going to be there. What where does where do you fall afterwards like is it do i attack the rehab do i you know what what goes through your mind because this is a an abrupt stop yeah so i had an interesting feeling that i wouldn't that i i was lying on the side of that hill knowing how like my body eventually knew like your spine knows how bad the injury is. Like it feels it. Like something inside you is like, you might be done is, is what I was, what was going through. Like, this is bad. Like you're, you might be done. Like this could be it. You like, might no be done it. as a ski racer. You might be done as a human being. <laughs> as a ski racer. Okay. Uh, I, you know, not like I'm going to die. I mean, obviously like back in the day, yes, you would have died because you wouldn't have like medical attention to like right. amputate your leg so you don't go gangrenous. But, you know, <clears throat> um, but, but so, so actually interesting thought, like now that I think about that question, really interesting question, that's probably what I was, my body was thinking. Like, you know, in my, but like in, like internally your body's like, you know, this is a very, very serious problem that you could, you, that without medical attention, you will die from no, like you will die from that. Like yeah. guaranteed. Um, <laughs> we have medical, modern medical attention and a helicopter to take you to a, you know, a, a you know, a, a hospital that sees a lot of trauma in the, you know, Chamonix Valley. So that wasn't really a worry, but I think internally, like, I never thought about it that way, Chris, like, yeah, the probably that was probably part of it. But in my mind, it was more selfish of like, my career is over. And this could be bad enough to end my career. And I was right. It, it, was this 23? I was 24. 24. Okay. I was 24 years old. Which as a and, downhiller, that's starting your career. Just getting started. Yeah. You're just getting to know the tracks. I mean, so much of it is the experience of where you want to be, what you're going to expect. Yeah. And, and then you can actually go for it. You were, you were pushing, pushing the, the time, uh, the, the timeline a little bit in being competitive early on in your, <laughs> in your young twenties. I don't Yeah. Well, why wait for success? No, just, <laughs> just, uh, yeah, yeah. It was early, man. Like I had the whole, my whole, like the best part of my career, you know, realistically should have been like late twenties, early thirties as a downhiller. That's just kind of like the standard. Right. So like you said, getting to know the track, um, you know, and or, or the tracks and getting comfortable with speed and just understanding your body and your limits and like your mental approach to the game. And, you know, I finally just felt like it was, I was ready. I was poised for, you know, the right, like I had everything I needed to win essentially. I had the right equipment. I was strong. I was mentally prepared. I was, I had confidence. And at that moment, it was like the ultimate, just like smackdown and like weird, like good. No, you're, that's not happening. You know, like that, just like that one little mistake, all that work. And that was a hard thing to swallow. Like I'll, I'll, so many things go through your mind. I mean, you've been through, 
you know, unimaginable trauma as well. Right. You get it. Like it, it's, You've done it. yeah, yeah, it, it, it's, it's hard and it's a really hard thing to like, <laughs> I still have a hard time with it, man. Like I'll, I, I don't like, I have issues with it sometimes. I'm like, why did that happen? Like that shouldn't have happened. You know, like why that happened to me? But like at the end of the day, it's just, it's more of like, where do you go with it? Like, where do you take that energy? And I get emotional about it because I was lost for a while, like lost. And you're one person for <laughs> who you think you are for your whole life. And then it's gone. And you're like, whoa, who am I now? Like, I literally was a different person. Like, it changed me. Like, I I had not a care in the world, happy as can be. Like, and like, I'm not that same happy-go-lucky kid anymore, you know? Uh, but I think the segue here is, is it opened my mind to emotion and to expressing emotion, not having to be this like hard-nosed downhiller. And, you know, and then music came in and there was this like ability to express feeling through song and my experiences that that I couldn't really necessarily talk about, but I could use song and 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 music as my outlet, and that was pretty. I was lucky to have that, I guess you know, and and like you know, one door opens or one door closes, another opens, and so suddenly you're in a different room. Yeah. <laughs> Can you be both people at the same time, like the the hard nosed downhiller and the the open to emotion musician? And we've got to catch up a little bit on on the musician part, right? Because you obviously you started playing as a freshman, right? A freshman in college. I mean, this is this sounds like I mean, there's a fair amount of serendipity in your story, right? Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I mean, you were open I, to serendipity. Yeah, I think that well, the music thing for me was was really just a pastime, you know, like I, I picked up the guitar. I love music. Like I've loved music since I was, since I can remember, you know, like I was always, you know, I, I get a similar high or euphoria, if you will, from a, a great song as like skiing a great run. And I started playing, you know, I started playing guitar. Well, first of all, like this, the, the middle school band made me play clarinet. I wanted to play the sax. <laughs> and they made me play the damn clarinet for five years and they never let me play the sax because they i didn't take piano lessons as a kid so i had to play the clarinet which is funny in a lot of ways and then i so i learned to read music and all that and then i picked up the guitar but i never learned to read guitar music i just wanted to play so i just started playing and friends would teach me chords like you know simple chords and then I show up at Dartmouth freshman year and my roommate, Gordy Quist, who is in the Band of Heathens, he started the Band of Heathens with Ed Jurdy, they're at Austin, Texas, killer band, rock and roll, finely tuned rock and roll machine. They're just awesome. And uh, anyway, I show up to college freshman year and Gordy's my roommate and he's got like, I show up with my Fender Strat, like total, like typical, like I got my Fender Strat, like cool. And he's got this beautiful guild jumbo body acoustic and this gift. Like he has all these, he has six probably guitars at school. And in, in your tiny of, little dorm room, I'm like, yeah, where do you put all yeah. these guitars in your dorm room? 
he has so many guitars and they're all most of them are acoustic and i just like oh my god like this is cool and he's introduced me to all these texas singer songwriter because he's from texas he's from spring texas and uh just outside of houston and uh you know he'd introduced me like robert o'keene pat green kind of some of these like texas songwriters you know and i was never into that stuff and suddenly i'm like I'm liking this songwriting thing. I want to play acoustic guitar and that makes sense. I can travel with it on the road as a skier. And, uh, you know, it, it was a fun, it was a fun, like, I mean, I would use it to like write, you know, parody songs for like my fraternity brothers, like making fun of guys and things like that. It was like, it was a joke. It, it was stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the good stuff. Uh, and yeah, that was it, man. And like traveling the world, as a ski racer, you have a lot of downtime, right? You're not skiing, you know, most of the time. <clears throat> so you can choose like really bad European television that you don't understand or video games, which I didn't really care about. And so instead I just like played music and like started writing and not really writing much actually until the injury. And then like the injury is where it's like, okay, so I've been practicing, I've been playing, I have a, love, a joy for it. It's a great pastime. And then suddenly it's like this major traumatic event happens and you don't have an outlet. Skiing's no longer your outlet or your thing. So like music's your outlet. And, and that's where it went. Like it was just. And were could, you pretty good at this point or? I mean, I was a hack on the guitar from like, looking back, like, you know, I was okay. Like I had a rhythm, I could, I, I had a good rhythm, um, decent chord progressions, but not like, you know, not by no means an expert on the guitar and still not, I don't have my 10,000 hours in yet, but you know, Malcolm Gladwell still cursing you. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I just enough to like be, you know, be able to write songs like simple songs and and that became my joy, you know, like that was it. Like that was my, um, my thing, you know, I just would, I was coping, you know, with the injury and my, you know, for sure depressed, for sure in a lot of pain, not sleeping, um, you know, on pain meds, uh, multiple, I mean, I ended up having like 12 surgeries on this leg and just a terrible recovery. And so like, music was great <laughs> yeah music was a great way to like you know you're waking up at 2 a.m like what are you gonna do with your time you know you're gonna just sit there and like try to like dwell on things or are you gonna like write about it so i would just keep a pad by my you know on my nightstand and you know i'd wake up at odd hours and finish a song or start a new one or you know until i could fall asleep again you know and that was kind of like the start of it and then Trevor, who was in a band in college with my roommate, Gordy, good friend of mine, Trevor Nealon, um, moved to Park City, amazing piano player. He's now in the band of heathens as well. He was like, free dog, like you got, you've been writing a lot of stuff. Like, let's go into the studio. Let's put a band together and do this. And, and it was really him that pushed me to do it. And, and you know, he, I didn't, I wasn't paying him to, to like play with me or my friends. They just wanted to like, I think they wanted to like help me out. You know, I think they probably, <laughs> in hindsight, they probably felt sorry for you. They're like, let's get free dog, uh, you know, some studio time. Um, 
and that was it like we started recording we recorded one song in my friend's garage damien actually had a really cool my friend damien rumetz brilliant guy another dartmouth guy uh he had a home recording studio set up and we we made a rec one record we made one song and and that was the start of it. i was like oh i like that that that's that's cool like this is this feels good and it was like kind of like it was a, a, the substitute of that rush of coming down, you know, through the finish line off of a downhill. It was enough of a substitute for me to be like, oh yeah, I want to do that. Um, more, I want to do more of that. And, and, uh, and I think surfing, it was kind of like a weird segue here, but I had moved to Santa Barbara to rehab my leg because I just couldn't be in the mountains anymore. And I didn't want to be here anymore. I didn't want to be a broken record and talk to people about how awful I was feeling every day. I think you probably understand that yep. broken record feeling as well. And so I moved to Santa Barbara and found a great trainer down there and, and picked up surfing simultaneously. And that was cool because being in cold water with a tight neoprene suit on a really angry, swollen, inflamed leg was the best thing for me. And there's something about water and the ocean in general, as we know, it's a healing, it's for sure a healing mechanism. And yeah, you know, I would just surf and I, you know, I would have to crawl to my car sometimes from the beach because my leg was in so much pain, but surfing, no problem, like no issues. Yeah, it's interesting. So we get, so we get the hard-nosed downhiller who essentially gets, gets cracked open. The emotions come out of it. We've got the the rehabilitation part of, of music, really the therapy of music where you're playing and you have these friends, you're surrounded by friends who are musicians. What does it manifest itself in? I mean, you did that one recording. Where, where did it go from there? Yeah, I mean, it just kind of, I mean, I don't know. It's, I'm trying to remember like what, like what other sparks there were that like kind of kept pushing things further but the Sirius XM thing or Sirius satellite radio thing was like I mean look in hindsight I'm not, I'm not like sugarcoating this but like there was a guy that worked for Sirius XM he was the president of entertainment and sports who really liked the ski team loved skiing they did a deal with Bodie Miller and I met him through Bodie essentially and he invited me to come into the studio and check it out and and in New York and I did and and like the ski team like asked me to play at like the ski team ball in New York which you know I got to open for the Doobie Brothers and you know train like stuff like that it was like really cool like just because I was a skier right and then you played at Beaver Creek one year too at the downhill and super G yeah at the yeah yeah I played at the finish line <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh you know, so there was like these weird things that kind of happened and then and then the serious XM thing came about and there was a competition. They were like who like top, you know, emerging singer songwriter It was like a vote thing. You had to get votes and you know, basically ended up like like tying for the win on this thing. And in that's where I got like the, you know, number one emerging singer songwriter on Sirius XM because I had a fan base of, you know, from from ski racing and local community stuff and um it was just good to feel like some support there. Right. And, uh, you know, at that point we, you know, we made one record, had one record, you know, we recorded it in Pleasant Grove, Utah and some guy's house that what like was the title of that one road sodas road sodas. Right. Yeah. And that one was really like, that's the, you know, I look back at that and that was like, a lot of that was written, you know, um, 
that one and 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 uh matchstick memories were like that was like me dealing with you know my injury and life and like love and all of it like just i don't know i'm just writing here here it is like i'm not you know it's kind of autobiographical in a way a lot of it it was just that's how i knew how to write back then that's just here you go this is what it is um and yeah kind of wild like it's it picked up some momentum and you know it was pretty cool it was just you know it was i don't know it was crazy <laughs> it was just different a different world although i will say like not much different from like being a ski racer in the sense of like you're packing up like you know a bunch of ski gear and going from race to race now you're just packing up like musical gear and going from bar to bar club to club and that honestly didn't really like interest me much that part of it i was like okay oh, you've got to describe what you mean by gear because i remember landing at the airport with you one time <laughs> and you had all of your downhill skis you i mean how, how many pairs of downhill skis did you have oh man we travel with i think you were waxing skis like you had all your skis and you were like work this was early season like waxing a man and stuff Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we probably had, I don't know, 15 pairs of skis we travel with, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. Um, In my mind, I have this number of 34 or something like that. that was, <laughs> it was like bags and bags of skis. I remember you just going back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> yeah, mainly we lift weights in the off season so we can move our skis without hurting our backs. That's, yeah, that's the true story. It has nothing to do with resisting the gravitational force or or, or uh, on the, on your legs and the compression of a downhill turn. It's more of lifting ski bags from van to ski room and back. But yeah, I mean, yeah, something about it, like, and I, uh, maybe I made the wrong decision, you know, something about it turned me off of like, I don't know if I want to start from scratch again. Like I, I, I just, I was still, it was probably too hurt and just too beat up from the, from the ski, you know, my career pretty much being over and like, I don't know if I can start from the ground up and the, and like live this way again. I don't know. Like it's skiing or with music. Well, with music, it, it, it's like, you gotta like, you know, you gotta start off in the, you know, in the, and the, in the youth league and you pay your dues. And, and, and uh, I was tired at that point. I think of, you know, what I was probably what, when I started playing like a lot, I was probably 27, 26, 27, somewhere in there. And then by the time I was 30, I was just like, I don't know, like maybe I'll just go work on soul poles full time. And, and yeah, and that's kind of where. That you skiing one more go though, right? I mean, you were in Santa Barbara, you were doing the rehab. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. You're right. How did that work? Um, yeah so i mean i just found this awesome trainer and again like in the winter months like there's no one like back in the day you know even just 10 years ago there was no one there to like help you out in the winter you know they were like they're all out like with the team wherever they were traveling to so there weren't like therapists and you know i mean there was a gym but like i needed help like i needed somebody to like build me back to like put me back together build me up figure out how to make this leg function in a ski boot and without pain and be structurally sound. And, 
there was really no one around and and like the ski team didn't they weren't built that way like back then and so i found a trainer in santa barbara this guy named marcus elliott who has become a very prominent guy in like the pro sports world he's he's done really well for himself he's a really interesting harvard trained physician that didn't want to do you know the medical thing he wanted to work with athletes and found a way to do it and and we met through a mutual friend and and you know his business he was just getting started he didn't like he was like working out in in the rehab facility where i was you know getting my uh ice and stem and skin rolling on the skin graft that I had. I have these like gnarly skin grafts and they'd have to like, you know, take the skin between their fingers and roll it to loosen it up off the t muscle tissue and pretty it's awesome. Extreme pain every oh, day. Every day. But like, but was I, that part of it for you? Like the extreme pain is like, okay, this is what I have to do in order to get there. So this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was to me, I finally had a therapist that was willing to take a risk and push the limits and do the things that were necessary versus just, you know, reading off the chart, run of the mill, ice stem, see you later, see you later. Like I, the, I went through so many therapists over the course of that, just like, like they're about as fun to work with as the doorknob on my front door. Like the, then I found the creative one this guy named Kevin Brown um, who's no longer with us, but he was the one who like took one look at me and he's like, we need to help him. We need to figure out. And like the first thing he did was put like the best ice pack I've ever had in my entire life on my leg. They made the best ice packs. And right then and there, I knew that attention to detail was like, these guys know what they're doing. And so it stemmed from there. They did like skin rolling. They did all sorts of rehab. They, they determined that, that the 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 rod in my leg that they put in in, in chamonix was too long and in, every time i'd bend my leg the back of the rod would scrape the back of my patellar tendon oh, and so oh. i couldn't get flexion like and kevin was like we can't do any more for you unless you have this removed and the ski team doctors didn't want to do it eventually like we convinced them and and we, we, we made it happen. And, uh, <clears throat> Dr. Beals at university of Utah was awesome. And, uh, Dr. Cooley helped out quite a bit too, but they pulled that thing out, put a different rod in. And within two weeks, I was a new man. I was like, Oh my gosh. So like I'd gone through all this stuff, like crazy, like skin grafts and multiple surgeries and you just name it. And like, they, I just had this rod and that was too long. So like the bones weren't healing. There's a lot of issues, man. Like, I, I mean, we could talk an hour just about like what went wrong in the healing process, but, um, but that was a big part of that and finding Kevin to like push the envelope. And, and then through Kevin, I met Marcus and Marcus Elliot was like, what do you think about working together? And it was like, well, I, you know, I'm pretty beat up. I can't do much. I can't run. I can't, you know, I was like, well, let's go for a surf and talk about your recovery. So I'll never forget. Yeah, Will go ahead. You mentally at this point like do you, do you believe that you can get better yeah so at this point i'm 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 i do believe that i can make a comeback herman meyer did it okay. you know herman meyer made a comeback uh 
Is it yeah. hard? Like when you look at your leg, you know, you're there and you're like, okay, this is good. And you look at your leg and I mean, cause even like I saw you at, at Whole Foods this summer and I was like, you know, I mean, like you were wearing shorts and, and there <laughs> it's, it's, it's pretty evident that there has been some trauma on your leg years post. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, do you look at it and go, am I crazy? Am I doing what I think I can do? Or, or is this, is this the right path? Yeah, I think, uh, I think I was just stubborn. I was like, I need to, I need to know. I can't not try. I have to try. I will regret not trying. And it was that kind of energy that drove it. It was an uphill battle. It was swimming upstream. It was it's a moment in your life too, isn't it? I mean, like, this is like a signpost moment of like, okay, let's see who you are. Let's see what you have. Yeah. Is that where you were? Yeah, that's, that's exactly like, I'm, I'm pretty, I, I'm, I wouldn't say like, I'm just like kind of like driven and stubborn in a way. Like if I want to do something, I'm going to do my best to do it. Mm-hmm. And that was like, I want a recovery and see if I can make it back. And the ski team was, was pretty lenient. Like, the first couple of years, like they were like, take your time. You know, it took me two years to like really return to any type of like skiing at all, like ski racing. Like it was, it took two years. Uh, you were this guy then, knocking on the door too, right? I mean, like you were the guy who is, they had Bodie, they had Darren, but you were the guy who was like young, young guy coming in there, this young punk who's putting some, putting some, some results in there. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I was next in line. Me and I would say myself and Marco Sullivan, you know, like same age, kind of, you know, Marco had some early earlier successes, but yeah, I was the next in line at that point. Um, <clears throat> and then, uh, so I, yeah, part of the part of it was that and like goals unachieved, uh, not wanting to give up. Um, what else am I going to do with my life? <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know. What else am I going to do? This seems reasonable. Like, let's get better. Let's, let's see, you know, at the very least, there was no downside to like getting healthy, doing the best you could to get healthy and to, to be able to at least go for a jog again. Like I, I, you know, and so Marcus will never forget it. We like, we go surfing and this is really like our first session together not knowing it at the time and we were jogging <laughs> on the beach out to sands to go surf this little point near ucsb campus and you can do a beach jog and i was like i can't run marcus like we just gotta walk he's like well let's run 10 steps and walk 10 steps <laughs> like all right so we run 10 steps and walk 10 let me run 10 and that was him like just i was negative man like i was in a negative headspace and wasn't seeing the positive side of things like I used to. And he helped me turn that around a little bit and start believing and that was cool. Yeah. And, and so when did you, when did you get to the point where you could ski again or where you could think, okay, I can put this leg in a, in a boot, put this foot in a boot. Yeah. I, I, uh, couple things I, I did i took a trip to europe to see herman meyer's boot guy he made a mold of my leg and developed a tongue that 
on the so it would fit because I had a lot of pain, like the shin where I broke my um, tibia, right. uh, you know, needed to be comforted <laughs> in a way. So like that was going to break is the place where there's going to be pressure later on just because that's the way it works. That's how it broke. Right? The calcium <laughs> builds up, right? Like you have like all this bone growth around that spot. And there was, oh, dude, I forgot about this. Like, I totally forgot about this. I had this crazy surgery with this stuff called OP1 that Stryker makes, which is like an inflammatory bone growth mm -hmm. paste. Right. And they, we tried it. It's like, and it worked. Like my bone wasn't growing really well. I did bone stimulators. I did all these things. I took bone marrow for my pelvis, like you name it. Nothing was working. And then this stuff like worked and like caused this inflammatory response. So my bone finally like really grew back better, stronger for my, you know, specifically for the tibia ended up becoming like a sponsor of mine for a year, you know, like it was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, then enter like getting back to health and getting back to skiing. So it took two years to start skiing again. And then, you know, I was very tentative. I was, you know, painful. I couldn't do, yeah, I just couldn't push it like I used to. Um, but I was making progress and I was skiing fairly well. And had, but I had to start over. Like I had to go back to the Norams, and I'm like, on your own dime too, right? Well, at this point, not yet. I was still on the ski team, and then let's go back. Yeah, I mean, the ski team told me you have as long as you need to get healthy. You just need to show that you're health. Sorry, not as long as you need. You have until the end of the year to show that you can compete, stay healthy and intact, like no, nothing broken, nothing like injured, but you don't have to make criteria. And so I trusted that and developed my plan for that season to, to, to be healthy through the season, not necessarily to like make criteria. And in March, of that season, I get a call from Phil McNichol, the head coach at the time, and he says, hey, I got some something I got to talk to you about. Uh, you, you have to make criteria now. And this is March, like the season's over pretty much. And I was just like, excuse me? Like, what? Like, what are you talking about? Like, we had a deal like the beginning of the year and he was getting yanked around by, you know, Alpine coordinator, Jesse Hunt, and Marold or whoever, like you can point fingers, but at this point, like it was just a systematic breakdown and I was not communicated with properly. And that was how the cards stacked against me. Um, you know, and I did not make criteria that year. I was very close. I was like very, very close. It wasn't like I was way off. I was like, you know, 10 people away from making criteria kind of thing. And they're like, sorry, you didn't make the team. Like you're going to pay your own way now. And, you know, I never, this is, this is a great conversation I had with Jesse. He flew me in from California to like, tell me that it was over, which I appreciate. Like, I like the face-to-face -face of that. And I was like, well, where's like, where's the funding going? Like, why, like, how am I not considered in this? 
You know, it's like we need the younger athletes need the funding. The younger athletes need the funding. The younger athletes need the funding. Two weeks later, we're at camp in, in Mammoth in, in May or whatever, a month later. What are, the, what are the development team boys tell me? Their funding just got cut. So I basically was lied to, uh, to my face, flew me in to do that whole scene. And uh, I just like, you know, what a disappointment. Like what a disappointing organization in general. Like for me, like my experience was very disappointing. Um, it's not that for like that for everybody. And I know that they're trying to do their best, but, um, but man, what a like insult to injury, like tell like to tell you one thing and then like just pull the rug out from underneath you at the end of the, end of the season to tell you something different and then basically lie to you about why they're doing it. <laughs> it's just like, you know, and at that point I was like, had a chip on my shoulder and was like, I'm going to keep doing this. And so I paid my way that next year, started racing Europa cups again, uh, started hitting the podium on Europa cup. Um, but politically was not in good standing with the team and was not getting the world cup starts I deserved. And, uh, I just realized it was like, they're, they don't want me here. They, this isn't like, this is it. Like, I, I think this is it. Like, I, I can't, I can't live like this anymore. Um, and so I, yeah, I called it. I, I was like, they're like, you can race. They gave me like the two hardest downhills. Like you can race Formio and you can race Kispiel, but they wouldn't give me any like ones that maybe I could like, you know, ease into and like have a, just have a nice race. And so I crashed in Bormio, was fine. I walked away and then Kitzbühel, I skied very tentatively and I walked away without saying a word. That was it. Um, that was my last race. And so Kitzbühel uh, was your last race. So I always thought that Lake Louise was your last race when, when, when you, so, so when you broke your leg again without, no, I, Oh yeah. Oh, so yeah, we, sorry. I went too far forward <laughs> when I, yeah, before, during that season when I was not on criteria back in Lake Louise, um, your, uh, Noram, uh, you know, I was feeling good, healthy and it was my first downhill back and, you know, coming through like a pretty bumpy turn, like felt like something like this, my, the tip of my ski, like got caught in a rut. Like it was like a quick, like, bam. But like, you know, that happens, like you keep going and come through the finish and like come to a stop. I'm like, well, my leg kind of hurts a little bit. That's weird. I tell the trainer, I was like, I think something might've happened. Like I, you know, something's not right. So I go get an x-ray and I refractured my fibula in the middle of a turn in a downhill. Finish the race though, which is kind of cool. <laughs> you are a badass, that's for sure. Well, I don't know. I didn't have much feeling left. I think I think that was the case. The the nerves were so damaged that, you know, I had a lot of nerve damage from the from the initial breaks to like some things you could feel 10x what you normally would, and some things you wouldn't feel anything. It was weird, like that kind of thing. So so yeah, that happened and and uh and then the next year. I was, you know, needed to have like. So you came back from that. So you broke your leg in a race that you did not fall and then came back from it again. Yeah. One more, one more year chasing it. Yeah. Came back from, from it one more year chasing it. And then, you know, just 
I just, I remember calling my dad. I was like, you know, that last year. And I was like, Hey, uh, I'm going to race Kitzbühel. It's going to be my last race. Do you want to come over? And he's like, yeah, I'm coming. So he came over, he flew over, brought a friend. I mean, I could, you know, I probably shouldn't have raced to be honest, looking in hindsight, like it was super gnarly, flat light, bumpy as hell. I, I just survived it. Like, but you don't want to survive Kitzbühel. You want to race it. Um, but I'm, I didn't, you know, I made it through the finish and I felt that last kind of rush. And um, I did go to U.S. Nationals that year, but there was so much snow that we just powder skied and, and that was it. Like that was, I just, I didn't announce it. I didn't say thank you to anyone. I didn't, like I kind of regret the way I retired, but I wasn't in any like like emotional headspace to be like, yeah, I'm retiring. This is fun. Uh, I've always wanted to write a letter, you know, to my coaches to thank them. And I just haven't sat down and done it yet. But um, yeah, kind of interesting. <laughs> like, where, where was the music at that point? So you were, I mean, you were putting everything, heart and soul into getting back to skiing what were you doing on the music side or how did that balance um i was playing a lot like it was my companion on the road because that year i was alone like i would go to europa cups by myself like no other americans no coaching you know I would bum a technician off some of the European guys. I switched companies to Fisher and like Leo would help me out or like wax pre-wax skis for me the week before and send me the Europa Cup. Like, and so I was just like, I had a car, I had my guitar and my, you know, some, a few pair of downhill skis and like, like a credit card. Like that, that was like my life, you know, for a number of races and, uh, just racing downhill too downhill and super g yep training some gs you know to like work on the technique and stuff but um you know those kind of things and then uh yeah it was just kind of like a wild you know a wild experience like i you know i didn't wear the us ski team uniform i just wore like what i wanted to wear and um like it, it was yeah i was just like but i remember like my, my thing was like, I'd always go to this wax, you know, the, the tune room, the wax room and hang out with like, just to hang out with people. I was lonely. Like there was like, I, you know, and I'd play music in the, in the wax rooms and like, you know, and I, you know, at home of course, but like, it's nice to play for people. So it's kind of fun to like hang out. So I do that a bunch and music was obviously like there, but it wasn't a huge priority during ski season. And then after that became more of a priority. And, um, yeah, it was along the way, I just feel like there was just like these cool little like circumstances and, you know, I was always writing and, you know, I think at that point I had recorded my second record had made my second record, um, that spring after the going through the whole, you know, miscommunication, we'll call it with the ski team about, you know, what I was expected to, you know, what was expected of me versus the reality. And then that led to a song that actually became very popular called spring cleaning. Mm -hmm. And 
and that was what Sirius XM picked up and played a lot. And I remember like, I was like, this is really cool. I was boarding, you know, a flight, you know, Delta flight. And I'm like, oh my God, that's my song. Like, how did it get here? I had nothing to do with that. Like, and there was just like, and it was written over the speakers in the airport or the speaker in the, in the uh, plane. In the plane. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just cool to like, did you tell anybody? I think it was more like kind of embarrassed to be honest. It was like, how did that get there? I'm so like, this is so weird. Uh, but it's a good thing you were traveling alone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Team, every, everybody would have known. Hey, dogs and, yeah, spring cleaning. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, I mean, had that experience never happened with the ski team that song wouldn't have been written you know so like funny how things work out i don't know i don't know why they work out the way they work out but um certainly try to make the most like anything emotional i feel like in general in your life if you can use that energy for something versus just you know i don't know overthinking it or becoming stagnant and that leads to probably like more depression and things of that nature if you can take that energy and move with it somewhere then that's a good outlet and i think that's just what i i i don't in in retrospect i didn't have the tools to deal with the trauma you know the emotional trauma or like i I didn't see a therapist i didn't really talk i didn't want to talk about it you know and it was but music was my way um was your therapy yeah music was my therapy so and your way of connecting with people i mean it's interesting because you talk about skiing and the start of a downhill can be one of the loneliest places to be i mean you've got the coaches (laughs) around you and you you have teammates and you've looked at the course and everything but then it gets to that moment you have the wand in front of you and it's like once you go through this, it's all you. You're you're there, and, and and coming through the trauma, it's the same kind of thing. Or or trying to get back onto the ski team, that lonely part, and making making that connection. It's it, it's interesting. I mean, this has been it's been an interesting, super interesting conversation, and it's just uh, how does how do these kinds of things like you've in some ways you've lived two dreams for the, for most people, like you've lived the dream of being an athlete. Then you've lived the dream of being a musician, uh, both of which most people never realize, right? It's like, oh yeah, that would be super cool to do that. But you've lived both of those. How does that change the way that you look at yourself moving forward with what whatever you're going to do but also with what you want and what you need to be fulfilled yeah that's an interesting question man like i i don't a probably totally spoiled and like you know that's like pretty cool how do you beat racing a world cup downhill like from like how do you find that adrenaline again like like you go to the top of a mountain in alaska and ski some first ascent like that's one way, you know, that was fun. You know, I did that, <laughs> you know, uh, musically it's so interesting. Like it, 
it's a really amazing rush and to be able to like create something that is shareable to an audience that they feel something from it maybe a fraction of what you felt when writing it or the emotion that got you there and maybe they feel that too that's the connection for music which is so different than skiing it's just you in music it's like back and forth and you know a cyclical thing and you give something that you get something in return scenario and and that is was so new to me that i loved that like that that energy it's so fun to experience that and it is a, i mean if you wanted to be a musician and you never tried it and never got to experience that then that's a bummer but like well yeah you're right i'm fortunate to have experienced that it's also like desensitized me to some things too whereas like like when life is boring if you will when you're just sitting at home during covid like punching the keys it like it's there's some lows there i mean it's nice to just be chilling but um you have to find different different ways to get that um i don't know that creative energy but also just i think it's just really it's it at the end of the day uh what's the medical term for it um the adrenaline it's not not the uh, opiates <laughs> the cortisol so thank you uh cortisol and uh adrenaline anyway I've, i'm missing the the term but but yeah it's like when you get that runner's high oh uh, um, the, yeah the... <laughs> we're not doctors but now, now you've totally yeah yeah the uh you can get the same thing from eating peppers too right yeah and it's yeah. just you're kind of chasing that response a little bit um and i miss it you know i haven't performed much the last couple of years at all and um but it's just you know it'll, it'll come again it'll be. It, it is interesting because it, it in some ways it's like you know the skiing the sport part is your youth right i mean like it's 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 the dream of a child kind of thing and 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 it is that adrenaline rush uh and but then but then like performing in front of crowds you hear this from musicians you hear it from comics where you're never going to get that same kind of love that you had when you're on stage, you know, like, like you get that. And it's so amazing that, that you might not be able to find it again, but it's, but there has to be something instructive in some ways, right. In, in from, from having these kinds of experiences that you go, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's part of it. But what was the, what was the essential? What was, was it the writing of the song that was, I mean, it was interesting the way that you said it, that, that hopefully they can experience a fraction of the love that you experienced when you were actually writing the song and, and get to the essence of where, it, where it fits and how it fulfills you, which to me is a, it's a really big question. It's like, we started some of these things before we ever knew what we were doing. And then yeah. you get some information and then you're like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean to me as a human being? Yeah. It's a, yeah. It, to be a human being, like no one teaches you like how to design your life, you know, or how to feel, how to express feeling or emotion completely not just no inhibitions, just here it is. 
you know, very rarely, like, do people have that ability, I think, like, it's more of a rarity than it is a common occurrence, whereas, you know, that's why maybe music is so appealing, because there's a moment of someone is sitting there watching you believe in yourself. And that's really it. Like, you're either up there, like, you believe in what you're saying, or you're just going through the motions, you know, or, or you're skiing with passion, or you're just getting down the hill. Um, you know, Bodhi skied with passion, left it all out there. You know, uh, a lot of us tried to do that, but like, but, 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 but music, why in music are you like allowed to be more of a heathen or, you know, or just out of control if you want to be, or, break a guitar and you know what I mean? Like you can do all these things, but I think people get, I think if, if you sing from something that's real and really mean it, they feel that like they, there's a vibration that they feel that you deliver. And if it's that, and if you believe in yourself and feel good about what you're singing and how that resonates. And I think that that, that's just like the ultimate, um, place to be and that's why music is so fun it's so fun <laughs> well it's like skiing isn't it i mean it's that search for the perfect turn it's yeah. that search for the perfect moment and when you capture it, you don't capture it all the time but when you're when you're when you're there and when you're vulnerable and when you're when you're in the moment it, it can come and you know that's the cool part what's uh, what's next for you right now give you a really hard question to end on here yeah what's next for me uh well it's coming up on lunchtime no, I'm just <laughs> exactly, fair I'm enough. no what's next for me is uh i i need i need a more creative outlet i haven't been utilizing my creative outlets at all like my friend johnny neal who i've played music with over the years he's this unbelievably soulful character you know, grew up blind since he was born blind at birth. Um, you know, played with the Almond Brothers in the '90s. Has written so many songs. He's just an amazing human. And, and and when we met, I hadn't been playing that much. I'd been like in a down cycle, and focusing on business, and you know, not playing. And he was just like, "Ah, oh, man, you just gotta pick up the guitar." You know, he's just like big, like gregarious characters like man you haven't been picking up the guitar you gotta pick that thing up and he just like called me out and that's all you have to do brian every morning evening whenever pick the damn thing up and strum because once you do that you're hooked like boom you're in but like if you're if it's sitting on the shelf in the closet not doing much good um so i just what's next for me is i just need to pick up the guitar keep writing and keep recording and keep moving on uh it just sing yeah i don't know you have something in the vault too don't you i've got a whole record in the vault man i mean i've got i'm sitting on some material one a couple i think some great songs to be honest but um that's not for me to decide that's for uh that's for the general public to decide the general public to decide but yeah johnny and i wrote a song called the river song that you know, he's been writing songs his whole life. He wrote songs with the Almond Brothers, you, you know, with a lot of talented people over the years. And 
we wrote this song and he's just like, whoa, man, like, I don't know if you realize this, but, you know, this is, this song's special. This is a lifer. Like, these songs don't come around more than a couple of times, you know, once, in, once a couple of times in a lifetime. So, um, hope you know that. So, we're sitting on that. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah, I don't know. That's a tremendous tease. We're sitting on that. When's that going to be published? I, I wish, I don't know, man. Like, I just need to do it. Like, that's the thing. You know, I didn't think COVID was the right time to do it. I don't know. I sat on it for a while. And, you know, like the energy kind of fizzles. Um, so I need to get that energy back. And maybe, like, I think maybe this could be the impetus. Maybe you're the one to, that I, I need the slap from Chris. Like, come on. help you. Come on, Brian. Get it, get it together. Um, pick up that guitar. I don't sound nearly as cool as your buddy, but you know. Hey, man, pick up the guitar. <laughs> yeah, he's a wild man. Oh my god, seeing the world through his eyes is amazing. Like he's constantly singing a tune, humming a lick, humming a you know a hook, or he just he's he's amazing. Uh, he is music. Life is music to him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this yeah. is this is so cool. I mean, like, thank you for for talking us through your journey. I, I feel like in, in so many ways, like I, I want to book your next appearance because we've barely even scratched the surface of right. so many, of so many other things. I mean, I'd love to talk to you about songwriting and, and how the, all that stuff works, but, but I think we're going to have to have you back. I mean, it's just, this is such a cool experience. Thank you for, I mean, I look back and go, okay, like the, the cracking in half kind of thing, you know, and like becoming emotional, like this is, this is it. I mean, this is that that's part of like the armor that we have to put on in order to be successful as an athlete. But it yeah. also can be the thing that shrinks our world so much that we don't see other parts. And, and to see that transformation is, is really cool. And then it's a matter of how do we keep going? How do we keep growing on that? So thanks yeah. so much for sharing. This is really cool. You're very welcome, Chris. It was, uh, pleasure speaking with you and you know it's uh it's good, good you're a good human <laughs> I'm learning from you as well man so uh let's do it again for sure and let's go skiing uh, no let's definitely do that yeah. thank you to all of you for tuning in the greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends you know say hey i love this you need to tune in you need to like it you need to follow it please do and please tell everybody you know and we'll see you next time thanks again brian we'll talk right to you on. soon Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.